You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmasoran from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining me as usual, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, we have some big news to talk about. Uh, we were originally planning, mm-hmm. listeners, on doing this podcast about the U.S. Department of Defense's latest China military power report. That's sort of a tradition every year on the podcast, I think, for the past few years. Uh, and we will get to that. But first, we want to talk about a more um, pertinent news peg, which is also China-related, which relates directly to the Trump administration's executive action on Wednesday, May 15th, 2019, uh, that really sets up a dramatic showdown over the issue of Huawei. Uh, So Huawei, of course, being the Chinese telecommunications company um, responsible for a range of products and services across the world, everything from consumer-grade smartphones to telecommunications equipment, and of course, 5G, which has been one of the areas of the greatest strategic concern for the United States. But um, what the administration did is, between the executive order issued on May 15th and a separate action taken by the U.S. Commerce Department that places Huawei on a U.S. Commerce Department blacklist, effectively, uh, Huawei will be Huawei risks being decoupled or cut off from U.S. supply chains. So what that means is things like Google's Android operating system, which Huawei pre-installs and sells on many of its smartphones, things like Qualcomm's systems on chips, which are the brains of many Huawei smartphones, would no longer be available to the company, effectively crippling it, if not destroying it entirely. Um, So this is obviously coming at a really tense time uh, in May. We've seen escalation in the trade war with the U.S., Um, moving up its tariffs on um, a certain proportion of Chinese goods from 10% to 25% with China promising retaliation. So things are tense. And I think the Huawei issue uh, really is emblematic of um, how it's maybe misleading when we talk about the current U.S.-China economic dynamics as simply a trade war, because it's not just trade, it's not just tariffs, it's it's much broader. It's about strategic industries, it's about intellectual property, about um, companies like Huawei that give U.S., particular concern, right? There's a range of issues with Huawei that have come up in um, in recent months and, and indeed in recent years, including the, comp- uh, the company's uh, theft of American intellectual property, the fact that its CFO is currently under house arrest in Canada pending um, pending um, her, her trial there and possible um, extradition to the United States over uh, knowingly bypassing American sanctions on Iran. So, that's that's kind of the broad setup here, um, but Prashant, I wanted to uh, you know get your take on on this action against Huawei. Um, how do you how do you think you know this is going to be or this is being received in China? We've already heard from the Chinese Foreign Ministry and of course from Chinese netizens who've predictably reacted with quite a high degree of anger. But how do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, I mean, I think the the broad point you made in the introduction is is the right way to think about it, which is that this is just one front in you know this this domain of U.S. China strategic competition that we've talked about on this podcast before, in the context of the national security strategy and the national defense strategy under the Trump administration, right? So there there's various components of that competition. There's economics, there's the military part that we'll talk about with with the DoD report, and there's technology um, and 5G and you know these other dynamics that we've talked about in various iterations are just one aspect of that. And that's what we're seeing with respect to Huawei. So this is significant, not only for US-China relations, but because when we're talking about Huawei and some of these technologies, this is something that's on the mind of, you know, virtually every Asian country, because it's the future of technology. And they're choosing between 
various alternatives, right? Whether it's uh, what Huawei is offering or Simmons, Ericsson, and, and various other individuals. And so these things that we're talking about with respect to supply chains, um, you know, U.S.-China competition, they affect all countries, not just the United States and China. So it's significant. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a lot of uncertainty with respect to how all this is going to play out, right? So U.S. President Donald Trump has, in my view, rather unhelpfully been talking to reporters about, you know, he's very certain that the United States is going to win on this. The United States always wins when it comes to these economic issues. I don't think that's a particularly useful frame because, you know, a lot of this is still quite unclear, to be honest, if you look at it from an objective point of view. So you have these designations and you have the United States taking a series of policy steps, but we don't yet know how these things are going to be enforced. We don't know how the Trump administration is going to deal with this in a sustainable way with elections looming in 2020 and market developments. We don't know how this is going to affect Huawei. We don't know how U.S. companies, as you pointed out, I mean, these are interlinked supply chains, how they're going to react, how they might respond, and how China is going to retaliate, right? Right. So there's, I would say, I mean, this is not surprising. It's significant. But I, I don't think we're yet sure about how all of this is going to play out. There are a lot of variables here. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And that kind of brings me to the other thing I wanted to talk about relating to this, which is that there is a way in which the Trump administration actually uses this as a smart strategic play with Huawei, because the way in which uh, the executive order has been implemented, uh, it still allows the United States to license American suppliers to still work with Huawei. Mm -hmm. So basically, uh, Huawei's life or death, I mean, right now hinges on the administration giving you know, companies like Google, Qualcomm, and others uh, the waivers that they need to continue doing business with Huawei. And what that means is, on one level, you have immense leverage if, if the United States decided to be strategic about it, because the minute Huawei does something, um, you know, that is contrary to American strategic interests, the Trump administration can, can effectively use the issue of these authorizations and pull the rug out from underneath the company. I don't think that's what's going on here, because uh, I think broadly what we've seen, even with the episode concerning, you know, ZTE last year, um, what we've seen is that the United States treats this as a national security issue, and there's often a degree of vindictiveness about it, right? I mean, many many senior policymakers within the administration, including trade representative Robert Lighthizer, Trump's uh, trade advisor, Peter Navarro, uh, and others, see competition with China in existential terms and really... Uh, a lot of what's driving these policies is simply the idea of punishing China for what many of these um, policymakers see as a long pattern of China taking advantage of the United States. So I'm not sure it'll actually play out in that kind of more strategic way where this turns into leverage that's used smartly. And then there's kind of the curveball, which is that if we do get a meeting between Xi Jinping and Donald Trump, which the U.S. side seems to think is going to happen at the G20 at the end of June, but the Chinese side hasn't yet confirmed there's always the possibility that Trump, who's very, you know, he's known for taking the opinion of the last person he spoke to rather well. So when he meets Xi and she asks him for another ZT style favor, um, it is possible that Trump, again, might step in and make Huawei's troubles go away for concessions from China on trade. So I agree that, I mean, this is still early days and there's a lot of ways in which this could play out. Um, yep. Yeah, did and you I want to add anything? No, I was going to say, I mean, I, I think that's a really important point to keep in mind, right? So whenever you have the Trump administration, and the Trump administration deserves credit for 
uh, sort of declaring that there is this sort of strategic competition between the United States and China, which under the Obama administration, we didn't see a lot of firmness on that. But the trade-off uh, with that in the, the Trump administration is that whenever we see any statement that's issued, um, there's always it's always followed by, well, maybe Trump is going to get into a room with Xi or some other leader and is going to say something very different. And then there's also a separate issue which you alluded to as well, which is Trump's advisors, some of them are very hawkish on China, but it's not clear if Trump himself shares those views. So those issues are still continuing to animate US-China ties, right? Even those uncertainties, even though there's a lot of clarity on actual US policy. And I, I don't see that changing. And I, that's probably something that's gonna intensify as we get closer to the elections in November, 2020, because irrespective of what the Trump administration does, I think it's it's kind of baked in to what international observers see US policy is manifesting as. Yeah, I mean, the one final thing I think I'll say on this is, um, I think we're entering this really interesting period now where um, decoupling between the US and Chinese economies, especially in the technology sector, is probably reaching an irreversible point. Um, mm -hmm. And I say this not only because of the Huawei thing, but also if you look at the other side of the ledger, um, you know, if if China does treat this as ripping the Band-Aid off of Huawei and, uh, you know, Huawei will likely suffer in the short term immensely. Over the long term, uh, if you look at the Chinese state's objectives, right, things like Made in China 2025, where the objectives include indigenization of the high technology supply chain entirely within Chinese borders, things like semiconductors um, and microchips, everything from kind of soup to nuts, including software, all being developed within Chinese borders. That process could become accelerated as a, as a result of the Trump administration voluntarily um, breaking the interdependency that does exist between the two sides. Because right now, uh, globalization has optimized these international supply chains to create efficiencies that benefit both American companies and Chinese companies. So, right, like Huawei and Google and Qualcomm all benefit from mutually doing business with one another. And right. when that's broken off, I think you, you start to see a, um, a point at which where it will no longer make sense for the Chinese leadership to hedge its bets on the fact that, you know, even a new U.S. administration might seek to reverse this. But longer term, this is just an unacceptable form of risk, especially as competition between the two countries is likely here to stay. Mm -hmm. um, and one other thing to point out is that, you know, we've been talking as if Huawei is a state-owned company in China. It's not It's not a state-owned company. Huawei officially says that it's privately owned by its employees. Um, but there's been some, uh, you know, questioning of the relationship. Obviously, there is a degree of state control over all aspects of commercial life in China, especially for a company as economically significant as Huawei. Huawei has a greater you know, market share in the smartphone industry than Apple these days, which people, I think, don't realize a lot of the time. So there is that kind of state capitalist relationship between the Communist Party and Huawei that I think uh, you know, merits closer, closer analysis. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's move on, talk a bit about what we were planning on talking about for this entire podcast before uh, this news broke. Uh, which is the latest assessment that the U.S. Department of Defense has provided to Congress. It's an annual report on Chinese military capabilities. Um, so, Prashant, I mean, this report, you know, every year it comes out and, uh, you know, people who read these reports year on year usually look for the changes because there is a lot of continuity. For example, we have continuing analysis on the strategic aspects of the Belt and Road, the um, militarization of features in the South China Sea and China's activities in the South China Sea throughout 2018, including further militarization there. Uh, we've heard about the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force, ongoing uh, pursuit of emerging technologies within the PLA, the, um, you know, uh, the advancements in the People's Liberation Army Navy and the construction of additional halls. But um, 
you know, we were talking before the podcast and, you know, you you said some interesting things about um, the reports highlights on things like Chinese overseas influence, which I think is also important in the context of the discussion we were just having about Huawei. So you want to, uh, you know, point out for listeners uh, what struck you about that in the report? Sure. I mean, I, I think one uh, quick point to reinforce about what you said, which is really important, is that um, these annual reports are best read in comparison to previous reports, right? And, it, you know, we're looking for things that may not have been said before that are said now. And they're also useful to be read in terms of being compared to open source scholarly accounts and reports that we get from journalists about what's publicly disclosed and what is classified by the Pentagon, right? So this is something that is is a relative baseline for where China is in terms of its military capabilities. And like you said, there's a lot of continuity here, right? The the report, if you compare it to the previous two iterations, uh, you know, Chinese quest for bases and you know places for overseas operations, theft of technologies like anti-submarine warfare, all of that is in there. I think the you know the two things that were made that were most most explicit in terms of changes were um, the two special sections on China's role in the Arctic and then Chinese foreign influence or interference operations. And I think the the latter is something that we've just heard you know a lot about, and there's a direct connection between that and. 5G, Huawei, and and China's influence on on media and and other sources, and that is something which I think, to be honest, I mean I I was struck by the inclusion, but if you read the actual section of the report on Chinese influence operations, it's actually quite short, and there's not a lot of details provided in there about specific instances. So if you're looking at it from the perspective of of an expert who's actually covered some of this, I think some experts have sort of said, okay, we wish there were a lot more case studies that were included. But at the same time, I, I do think that based on where we are on, on U.S.-China relations and this issue in particular, this is something that it just constitutes an introduction by the Pentagon. I suspect we'll, we'll see a lot more of this given the focus on where we're at. I think there there's other less explicit changes that are included. I mean, these are special sections that are explicitly included in the report. But if you read um, the sections on gray zone operations, right, the, the opera- operations that lay below the threshold of war and the so-called maritime militia, there's a lot of details that are included there that weren't included in previous iterations, even though this has been discussed as an ongoing issue. So the connections between the Chinese Coast Guard and the Maritime Militia and the People's uh, Liberation Army Navy, those are things that are discussed in more explicit detail. So we're seeing that. I mean, you talked a little bit about some of the specific developments in terms of technologies and equipment, right? Um, mm-hmm. So these include you know, aircraft carriers ballistic missile submarines and and the new air-launched ballistic missiles. Did you want to talk about those aspects uh, of change in relation to these things? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, So, you know, you made a really interesting point that this report sometimes does end up taking a cue from the open source community. And Mm -hmm. in the case of the three things that you just listed, what's interesting is that all of those have been reported uh, publicly before. And it's just nice to have confirmation from DOD. So the mm-hmm. the second indigenous aircraft carrier, the the Type 002, uh, which is the first Chinese aircraft carrier to feature a uh, catapult launch system for aircraft in, instead of the uh, short takeoff ski jump mechanism currently used on the um, the deployed um, Liaoning aircraft carrier and the um, first indigenous aircraft carrier that's that's um, undergoing sea trials. Uh, so, you know, this this carrier's existence is not a surprise. China's expected to probably end up fielding around six aircraft carriers through the end of the 2020s and early 2030s. Um, all of those should be built and operational. 
what's significant here is that you know this carrier does represent an important qualitative leap in sortie rates and we don't think it's going to have nuclear propulsion the dod report did not suggest that it would um but even still, it's going to provide the PLA, um, the PLAN with an important um, expeditionary capability that it currently doesn't have. Three carriers, I think, will be an important milestone, uh, even though the Liaoning is, is largely a um, training platform, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other couple of things that you mentioned um, relate to China's nuclear forces, which I think is interesting. And maybe we can talk a bit about you know, the arms control debate that's happening in Washington, where all of a sudden trilateral arms control with Russia and China is all the rage and it's probably not going to go anywhere, but, you know, we can talk about that separately. Uh, so the two nuclear force issues that struck out to me were, uh, stuck out to me were the uh, confirmation that China has constructed six type 94 ballistic missile submarines, also known as the Jin class by NATO. Uh, so these are the sea leg of China's nuclear triad, or rather dyad. I'll talk about why China doesn't quite have a triad just yet. Um and that's interesting. We had open source reports last fall that identified five hulls uh, at a minimum. And then there was a second report that actually identified six hulls. So again, I think DOD may have seen those reports and just decided that it was time to you know, confirm it that China has constructed six of these hulls. Uh, the last report only had confirmed four. So that's, again, an interesting point that I think increases the survivability of China's nuclear deterrent quite a bit. And then the final thing uh, on the air launch ballistic missile. Yeah, that's interesting. So I think I remember pretty vividly last year on the podcast talking to you about the this part of the report, which was that mm-hmm. in 2018, DOD confirmed for the first time in probably a few decades uh, that the People's Liberation Army Air Force had been assigned a nuclear mission. Uh, the nuclear mission for the Air Force ended in the late 70s or the early 80s, we think, when gravity bombs were phased out of China's bomber arsenal and the Air Force became a conventional only um, a branch of the military. And when when DOD confirmed that the Air Force had a nuclear mission again last year, it didn't tell us what weapon was being used in a nuclear delivery role for the Air Force. Um, one of the things I think we speculated about last year was that it might have been the CJ-20 air launch cruise missile, even though that you know there is no good evidence in the open source that that's actually a nuclear-capable system. This year, what's interesting is that the report clarifies some of our questions from last year. Uh, So if anybody was listening to this podcast and decided that it was worth clarification, uh, I guess we should say thank you. Um, (laughs) But the the clarification this year is that it's actually the new air launch ballistic missile that's under development in China that will give the Air Force a nuclear delivery capability. So that's an interesting clarification. It means that the Air Force today has a nuclear mission, but no actual nuclear capable system uh, is being fielded just yet. China, of course, doesn't deploy nuclear systems in peacetime, given it's no first use posture uh, generally. But, uh, you know, that's an interesting development concerning the uh, Air Force's structure that that stuck out to me. Um, do you want to talk a bit about the arms control thing? Sure. I mean, I and I think the, the the plug there is, I mean, we've talked about various aspects of this, right? We've talked about the, the INF Treaty. Um, we've talked about this in the context of strategic competition between the U.S. and China. And I think this a little bit of an, an obsession, I think, in Washington about linking the United States, China and Russia and linkages between all three, which goes back to Kissinger and this notion of um, if you're trying to confront the Russians, trying to reach some kind of agreement with the Chinese and how those dynamics play together. And, and there's also this deadline of the new START treaty with the Russians, right? And the, and the United States has declared strategic competition among major powers that includes China, but also Russia. So I guess all of this is something that is important to watch because we t- we've talked about the DOD report and what it said, but we've also talked about, you wrote a piece recently for us about 
how the Chinese foreign ministry explicitly pushed back on this notion of trilateral uh, talks between the United States, Russia, and China, right? So I guess, I mean, it is important to figure out what the administration is saying and then now what DOD is telling us about the prospects for those developments. Yeah, but yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so look, I mean, the Trump administration is all about great power competition and the two great power competitors they've identified are Russia and China. Mm -hmm. So I think there's somewhat of an extrapolation from that political finding that we're in a great power competition with uh, China and Russia to arms control and the expiration of the New START Treaty in 2021. And the idea being that, you know, we need to do trilateral strategic arms control with both the great power competitors at once. The problem with that, of course, is that it's just simply not based in qualitative or quantitative realities. Uh, and that's, I think, also true, not only in the New START context, but also INF, right? So in INF's case, the Russians violated a treaty, developed a ground-launched cruise missile that about four battalions of which are now deployed. The U.S. doesn't presently have any INF range missiles, although the U.S. is going to develop those. Meanwhile, the People's Liberation Army Rocket Force is about 95% comp um, comprised of um, ballistic and cruise missiles that would violate INF. So there, the Chinese response was pretty clear. Uh, Yang Jiechi said, uh, you know, when Angela Merkel proposed that China consider participating in INF at the Munich Security Conference, he pushed back and said, you know, no way is that going to happen. China has no interest in joining INF, even though China would like to see INF remain in place. And of course, that makes very good <laughs> sense for China. You don't want Russia or the United States to have um, INF-capable systems. Of course, the demise of the treaty, um, the cause of that was primarily the Russian violation, even if the Trump administration saw good reasons with um, the rocket force to pull out of that treaty. So there's that issue. Uh, but, the, you know, the INF Treaty is going to expire in August, and there's really no indicator to me that it's going to be saved in any way. So INF is as good as history at this point. New START is not history. New START remains active, and it's coming up on expiration, and talks may begin soon between the U.S. and Russia. There's a little bit of ambiguity. I'm not going to go into that right now. But um, China's position, uh, as you know, as you alluded to, the foreign ministry just pushed back and said, look, I mean— this is not going to happen. China's nuclear arsenal is an order of magnitude smaller than the nuclear arsenals of Russia and China. Uh, so even if you know great power competition is here, when it comes to nuclear arms control, there are some important differences. China, again, has a no first use posture and the the leanness of the Chinese deterrent. This is something the DOD report actually, I think, interestingly decided to clarify this year is that instead of providing a range on the number of ICBM launchers in China, they just provided a number. I think it was 100. Uh, you know, just to point out the fact that China has far fewer missiles capable of reaching the United States than Russia does. So trilateral arms control is just not going to go anywhere. But right now, politically, it seems to be a, a big priority in the White House. Trump has even talked about it. He actually said that China is interested, and I spoke to them. And this was right before the Chinese foreign ministry decided to clarify that that had not actually happened. It wasn't reality. Mm -hmm. So I don't think this is going to go anywhere. Um, I think the good sign is that the recent meeting between Lavrov and Pompeo suggested to me that Pompeo is, uh, or the, the Trump administration is thinking about doing talking about New START extension bilaterally with the Russians, and then once that's done, beginning the process of some kind of arms control in a trilateral context. And, you know, I, again, don't think that, that that's going to go anywhere in particular, but if they want to do that after they've figured out New START extension, I think that's probably best for all parties concerned. So, you know, they can have at it. But um, the idea of a trilateral New START-like arrangement just simply doesn't make sense given... Um, I mean, you know, like one good example is under under New Start, the counting rules for deployed warheads under New Start. If you applied that to China, 
the deployed warhead count would probably be like, probably be zero because New Start counts warheads that are actually placed on submarine-launched ballistic missiles and intercontinental range ballistic missiles. And China, in peacetime, does not actually, as far as we know, does not mate its warheads onto its missiles. And there may be an exception with some of the canisterized systems or the submarine-launched systems. But you know, I mean, so that's you know one big problem there is you'd have to redo the counting mechanism, and then you run into a whole thing with the Russians and the Americans again having problems with how that would actually work out in practice. So, yeah, short answer is I don't think trilateral arms control with China is going to go anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, and I think one of the angles that, that you're pointing to there that's important to reinforce, right, is that we're, we're talking about a, a DOD report that rests on, you know, sort of factual representations that we're seeing from DOD about Chinese capabilities. But there's also a lot of political elements here that are being pulled in, right? So we saw after the, the INF Treaty and the developments there, that there was this notion that was floating around that somehow you could leverage this and actually get confront the China angle of this relative to what you're doing with respect to Russia. So that's something that's been around, even though folks may poo-poo it on on a sort of strategic and analytical level, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the Russian issue, that's something which Trump is dealing with politically as well as a domestic political issue, even as you know that there are all these discussions uh, that are going on. And I think that there is this sort of um, notion in the Trump administration now that we've had, you know, we, we talk about Russia and China and strategic competition, but there's a there's another aspect to the national uh, security strategy and national defense strategy that also deals with rogue states. And we have North Korea, we have Iran, and now we have as well, I mean, the situation in Venezuela that the administration is dealing with. So I do think there's this aspect too, where I do sense the administration is trying to say, okay, we've got these threats and challenges, how do we manage this? I mean, if we if we have a, a front that we're opening with China, how do we sequence and leverage our priorities and which one comes first and which one do we sort of focus on even as we're moderating some of the other threats? And there's all kinds of um, exp- extrapolations of uncertainties that you go off of that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, well, I think, uh, I think that's about it for today. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining me, Prashant. Good to be with you. Great. Uh, For listeners, as usual, if you like what you heard on the podcast, make sure you subscribe. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play or Spotify, please do so. That really helps get the word out about the podcast. And finally, if you have suggestions for a future episode, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, This suggestion actually about the DOD report was a reminder that I received via Twitter DM. So uh, we always appreciate that and and do take it seriously. So we're happy to cover topics that uh, you as listeners are interested in hearing about. So Thanks, uh, thanks as always for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.